This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. The young shining cuckoo is fed by its foster parents on insects and spiders. But the korimako, or bellbird, has a much more interesting diet of nectar. It's been something of a radio personality and has sung on shortwave radio to Australia and the Pacific nations for 30 years. However, the early recordings failed to reflect the versatility of the bellbird, with its wide variety of liquid notes and artistically placed clicks and bell-like sounds. It's not surprising that Maori mythology describes Korimako, the bellbird, as the messenger of Tane, sent to herald the coming of the sun. Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or Chaos is made possible with the support of Quakers Aotearoa. You'll find them online at quaker.org.nz. Good day, friends. Today we have with us Professor Charles Pigden from the Philosophy Department. And he's the, um, going to be talking about uh, PPP. That's politics and philosophy and maybe ecology department? Combination. Economics. Economics, sorry. And then we'll be talking also conspiracy theories or anything else that feels interesting and philosophical. You can podcast this by going to oar.org.nz and then going to (coughs) podcast and then going to community or chaos. Welcome to Community or Chaos, hopefully more community today and less chaos. Charles. Thank you. Thank you, Marvin. Okay, well, um, uh, to begin, I I guess we should tell the listeners that uh, the precipitating occasion for me coming in today was... That's because you just got got a professorship. I I just got a full professorship after quite a while, um, and I had my inaugural professorial lecture, which is kind of a life and works thing. And uh, Marvin came along and decided to ask me in to talk about some of the themes in that uh, inaugural professorial lecture. Um, So so you should be well prepared. I'm... I'm I'm pretty well prepared. So, <laughs> shall we lead off with number one, Marvin? Yes, briefly. What got you interested in teaching philosophy? And if you couldn't teach philosophy, what would you teach? Well, a, a, a bit. I should say, my my primary interest is actually doing philosophy. Uh, you know, researching philosophical questions. I do indeed enjoy teaching. It's it can be a lot of fun, though it's a good thing of which there can be too much. Um, But, um, you know, I was just deeply attracted to philosophical questions. Now, it started off when I was a teenager, and there were two influences. One of them was um, Bertrand Russell. Now, if you read the autobiographies or, you know, autobiographical notes of a great many professional philosophers, they will tell my tale. Um, They will say... Well, I first got interested in philosophy when I started reading the more popular works of the philosopher Bertrand Russell. 
I then gradually got sucked into the more technical stuff and, and that's how I became a philosopher. And that's basically my story too. I picked up um, uh, Russell's autobiography, I think, first in uh, a bookshop in Luton. I'm, I'm originally English and I come from one of the least distinguished towns in, uh, in, in, in all of England, Luton, with... <laughs> I think the least distinguished university, uh, but it did have a bookshop and I used to go there uh, on weekends and um, uh, buy books. And I started getting interested in Bertrand Russell's philosophy. One of the most interesting works was his autobiography because it's a, an intellectual autobiography, but also a personal autobiography. And it talks about how various philosophical questions interested him uh, how, you know, he, he got obsessed with them. But it also talks about his life as a... Um, protester. <laughs> protester, I was going to say activist, you know. I mean, he was protesting some of the time, but, you know, not all of the time. And the huge number of political campaigns he was involved in in the course of his life. Now, in a way, you can't really say that for, um, you know, a lower-middle-class kid like me, He's a totally appropriate role model because Bertrand Russell was extremely aristocratic. He was a descendant of dukes and earls. Um, he was, um, his grandfather was twice prime minister. Um, his other grandfather was a member of successive governments. Um, and, you know, his um, ancestry is decked out with lords, ladies, and ultimately uh, royalty. I have a trick question uh, that I asked people about Bertrand Russell, which was which of his ancestors was assassinated or survived an assassination attempt in a cathedral in 1476? <laughs> Can you guess, Marvin? I, I, it wasn't in England. It was probably in France. It, Italy. It's mm. Lorenzo de' Medici, Lorenzo the Magnificent. You know the. Well, that was a while. Ago. That was a while ago. So he was but, actually you know, a direct lots ancestor of, of both of the English people, inappropriately in France. Yeah. So there's a, a, a poem by Hilaire Belloc, right, which is um, about um, Lord Lundy, who was far too freely moved to tears. So here's Lord Lundy, and it tells the tale of how easily he cried. And then it sort of cuts to the middle of his life when, as a young aristocrat, he enters politics. And um, he fails in his political career because a hint at harmless little jobs would shake him with convulsive sobs, and as for revelations, these would simply bring him to his knees and leave him whimpering like a child. It drove his colleagues wait, raving wild. They let him sink from post to post, from 15,000 at the most to eight and barely six, and then to be curator of Big Ben. And finally, there came a threat to oust him from the cabinet. Then it goes, the Duke, the aged grandsire, bore the shame till he could bear no more. He rallied his declining powers and summoned the youth to Brackley Towers and bitterly addressed him thus, Sir, you have disappointed us. We had expected you to be the next prime minister, but three. The stocks were sold, the press was squared, the middle class was quite prepared, but as it is, my language fails. Go out and govern New South Wales. Okay, well, the reason I sort of um, give this amusing um, thing is Bertram Russell was the kind of person for whom it would have been a rational hope, not an expectation, but a rational hope 
on the part of his family that he would be the next Prime Minister but three. You know, that would have been for him an achievable ambition. But he gave it away because he was interested in philosophy. He didn't have a political career, but he was continually drawn back into politics. I think because, you know, he thought he'd gotten into philosophy because the world was on the whole going in a good direction, so he could afford to sort of devote himself to um, uh, mm. philosophy. But well, then it turned out not to be going world in a good world direction. World and then he uh, felt drawn into political activism. So his life was a combination of these two things. Uh, in his case, he felt, you know, that it was natural for him to make a big difference to world affairs, whereas somebody else might not feel that. Nonetheless, you know, it, it was an inspiring life story. Um, not that Russell was perfect by any means, but the combination of intellectual commitment and political commitment was inspiring, especially as, you know, gradually Russell started off on the sort of centre-left of politics and gradually moved further to the left in the course of his life. Do you think he ever felt frustrated because uh, society didn't change as much as he might have hoped? He, well, he, uh, he, he, he says at the end that, that he felt that he'd failed, even though there were quite a lot of successes mm -hmm. to report. He was a campaigner for women's suffrage. Well, women got the vote. <laughs> uh, he was a campaigner for Indian independence. Well, India became independent. He was uh, a, um, uh, uh, a campaigner for um, a more liberal code of sexual morality, and we got a more liberal code of sexual morality. Uh, he was a campaigner for... Uh, socialism, and, and we got, in England, if we didn't manage to retain, if not socialism, at least a kind of social democracy. Uh, and uh, so, you know, in some ways he considered his life was, uh, as an activist, was a success. In other ways, he thought not, because um, uh, he failed to do anything to slow down or stop World War I. He was a very active campaigner. Um, uh, against British involvement in World War One, and a campaigner in behalf mm. of of um, pacifists, uh, including a lot of Quakers with whom he was quite closely associated, uh, and um, he felt that he hadn't shortened mm. the war by one day. Well, if he could have prevented World War One, he'd have done the greatest thing he could have done for humanity. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if there was one thing I could change in history, it would be World War One. Not because it's the most miserable thing that's ever happened, but it changes the 20th century into something awful. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. It, it, it put, and, and this is, I, I guess, one of the things I got from Russell's autobiography. World War One pushed the 20th century into catastrophe. You know, and you read lots of histories, and they say, well, uh, there's a there's a history by Kershaw called. To Helen back, and it starts at the beginning with World War One, and then takes us um, through um, World War One, the disasters that that precipitated, um, uh, World War Two, the disasters that that precipitated, apart from the horrors of the war itself, and then very gradually how, at least in some parts of the world, um, things started to improve, particularly in in uh, America and Western Europe, and and we're on a fairly good path for the next thirty odd years. That isn't to say there weren't all terrible things happening elsewhere. 
Yeah, so um, anyway, what he felt was um, he hadn't done enough to um, uh, um, successfully create a peaceful world. Lesser people than him have that feeling. Yeah, yeah, well, that was one of my things. (laughs) I I, I felt that, um, you know, politically... I, I've, I've been, you know, in my spare time, uh, you know, a, um, a bit of a political activist on and off, and that I haven't been terrifically successful either. <laughs> so um, considerably less so. No, sometimes know, I considerably call less so than Russell. I the master say. of lost causes. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, uh, let's hope there's uh, let's hope there's still hope. But <laughs> yes. but uh, but you know, seriously, what's gone wrong in my life that I would like to have done something about tried to do something about and basically failed to do anything very successfully about that's the rise of of neoliberal politics and their continued domination particularly in english-speaking mm. countries to a lesser extent well, elsewhere we made a good effort with the alliance we made a good were, effort um so um just for listeners uh marvin's probably talked about this with his guest before but um you know, we, Balvin and I, were both parts of the new Labour Party and then the Alliance in the um, uh, 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 1990s and early 2000s. And our basic uh, mission, as I conceived it, was to slow down, halt and reverse the neoliberal revolution. And what I think was... We slowed it down. We slowed it down, maybe stopped it, but we certainly didn't make much progress reversing it. (sighs) Well, Charles, when you were writing... In some ways, you already covered what you're into, how you got interested in politics, so we might go on to another question. Could you talk about hedgehogs and PP? PPE. Mm. Well, these are, to some extent, distinct subjects. But um, So let's first talk about PPE, right? So PPE is philosophy, politics, and economics. And we have, at Otago, a philosophy, politics, and economics program, of which I was one of the founders and for a long time the director. I have to say, um, I've now handed over to a brilliant successor in the person of Professor Lisa Ellis. But um, what's the basic idea? Well, um, these are three subjects with historical links, right? The early economists um, were often professional philosophers. Adam Smith was, um, you know, actually a professor of philosophy. Um, uh, uh, Famous philosophers like uh, David Hume um, wrote extensively about economics and politics, Gradually, the subjects have sort of uh, um, separated, but they still have a lot in common. And um, so what we thought we would do is, following the precedent of Oxford, we would develop a philosophy, politics and economics program here at Otago. We kicked it off in 1999, um, and uh, so it's been going now for for 24 years. Uh, It started off small, Uh, with about 20 students, um, and it's now got, I think, uh, 238, something like that. I think that would be the perfect program to be in if you were in university. 
Well, um, I'm, I'm not valuable as I think PPE is, right? I'm not a, a PPE chauvinist, right? There are many, many subjects that are worth studying at university. But, but you I, could study almost anything under that. Well, yeah, that's one of the advantages. Quite a lot of things covered up. For example, um, you're interested in healthcare. Well, what about the economics of healthcare? Or the philosophy of healthcare? Like, how, what sort of things should we be trying to promote in public healthcare policies? Right, that's that's a, a partly a philosophical, partly an economic, partly a political question. Um, uh, so there are all these uh, links. Then there's also questions about of methodology. So, for example, um, politics and economics are both often counted as social sciences. Right? But there is a philosophical question about how scientific the social sciences really are. Um, well, Jim Flynn had an answer to that, didn't he? Yeah, well, uh, again, uh, Marvin is talking about uh, our late friend and my uh, late colleague and, and Marvin's uh, late comrade, uh, uh, Professor Jim Flynn. Um, uh, he was the foundation professor of politics at Otago. They didn't have a politics department before um, he was appointed. And there was a question about what it should be called. Politics departments are often called departments of political science. Uh, uh, Jim's view was that politics is a thing and we're studying and you can study it in a systematic way but it doesn't amount to a science consequently he insisted it was called the Department of Politics mm. and not the Department of Political Science I wish economists had as much common sense well there's there are big questions about e economics um, uh, uh, how scientific it is uh, the test should be predictive power um, and uh, there is, of course, one spectacular stuff-up in recent history where leading economists not only failed to predict something, but in effect predicted the opposite. That's the global financial crisis of 2008. Right? Now, um, what was that due to? Well, the story is, is obviously complicated, but it was due in part to um, deregulation of financial markets. Basically, uh, banks were allowed to trade for profit and make, you know, uh, much riskier decisions than they'd formerly be allowed to make, been allowed to make. Uh, and, um, you know, a number of restraints were sort of taken away. And a whole bunch of famous economists, you know, Geithner, Summers, uh, Paulson, all said, uh, Greenspan, who was head of the Federal Reserve, all said, everything is going to be fine. Nothing can possibly go wrong. Uh, people behave rationally in markets. Uh, um, people can't make bets on, on really bad loans, which is essentially what the problem was. But the banks made bets on really bad loans. Uh, and the banks made bets on really bad loans. And it turned out, you know... Um, that and the people paid. And, and the people paid. Now, that's a case of predictive failure, right? That means... One of two things, not of all economists, I hasten to add, but of those particular economists. Now, either their economic theory predicts that if you loosen up um, uh, uh, um, uh, the regulations on banking, etc., right, you loosen up the regulations on the finance industry, either their theory predicts that if you do that, nothing bad will happen, right? That's a prediction of their theory. If so, 
there's something wrong with the theory. But neoliberal does predict if you deregulate, things will go... Well, and now the question is, how much is what you might think of as neoliberalism a, 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 a consequence of economic theory? Well, it's a consequence of some economic theory. You've got to be careful, right? Economics is a mixed bag with a mixed record. Some bits of it are good, some bits of it are bad, and, uh, or, or at least not as good. And, you know, there have been, on the part of some economists big predictive failure of course the other thing you might say is you know i said suppose let's let's grant right that all these economists were operating on the basis of theory when they said um nothing bad will happen when we deregulate the financial market so this is a prediction of their theory well in that case we know there's something wrong with the theory right okay here's another possibility they weren't saying this on the basis of theory, but on the basis of presumed expertise, not actually backed by their economic theory. Well, here, the failure is not a failure of the theory to which they subscribe, but a personal failure to because they um, basically were mouthing off without having the proper kind Wouldn't of intellectual backing. Wouldn't both? Or it could be both. Yeah, it, it could be a bit of both. Right. But uh, really, all those economists who said everything in the garden will be lovely when we deregulate financial uh, markets, they were seriously wrong. Either they were wrong personally in um, projecting things not uh, licensed by their background theory or there was a mistake in their background theory. They can't say it wasn't one or the other. And um, that seems to be a pretty serious um, criticism of them. Now, I should stress, this is a critic of some economic theories and some um, uh, some economists. It's not a critic of eco economics as such. Economics is indispensable. If you yeah. are trying to plan serious public policy, you've got to do it on the basis of the best economics you can find. Because if you don't, you might find that you can't afford but your, 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 the policies that you are uh, advocating. Or, and this is a thing that's very characteristic of, of economics thinking, and which we, we, t <laughs> we tend now to talk about this as being a PPS way of thinking. That, that's me and the teaching team, right? A PPS way of thinking. Look, characteristic of human affairs are... Are unforeseen consequences and invisible hand effects. The invisible hand is is what happens when you have a bunch of uh, mechanisms such that people making individual decisions, um, uh, pursuing their own individual interests, but in a sort of relatively stable and repeatable situation, produce a result which um, they are not intending. Now, this can be good or it can be bad. The invisible hand can, um, as a result of people's individual choices, deliver a result which on the whole is a good thing, or it can deliver a result which is a bad thing. Both of these things are perfectly possible. But one of the things that thinking about economics and thinking about economics, especially in the context of PPE, is be aware of invisible hand effects and the possibility of unintended consequences of your policies 
Um, and that's a really general lesson. And that's one of the reasons why um, you know, getting that lesson across is one of the most important things that we do in the PPE program. Of don't course, you, we teach them a lot about individual bits of philosophy, individual bits of philosophy. Don't you have to do the same thing with history and politics? Because you can really mess up there, too. Well, uh, and not always have the consequences you hope for. Well, yeah, that's right. And, and this is why you know, one should be modest and fact-based insofar as possible in, in, mm. in forming political policies. I was wondering if Keynes or Adam Smith really considered themselves scientists. I suspect they considered themselves philosophers, both of them. Uh, yes, yes, but I think there's... An I mean, there's a, I'm not saying yeah. you can't have legitimate theories yeah. that may be correct most of the time. Yeah, and, and there is a big but question. But it doesn't have to be how the science to how, have that happen. How good a theory has to be to qualify as a scientific theory, which, again, is a big topic that we pursue in philosophy. But the uh, uh, what is clear is, is economics a science in the sense that, I'm thinking of Keynes here, that you can uh, develop mathematical models... Um, uh, which often have at least some predictive power, and that um, uh, it's um, you can use you can evaluate these in the light of evidence, and some can do better than others. Right in that sense, yes. Um, in the sense that it delivers the kind of uh, robust predictions that you might get in the physical science, perhaps not. And didn't economics really develop, particularly the mid-period, at a time when everything was considered, wanted to be considered a science. Um, I'm not well, talking about Adam Smith okay. so much as Ricardo. Ricardo. Well, and others. Um, uh, the people in the mid, late 18th century, mid-19th century. Yeah, they, they, they definitely, and they were trying to make it a science in the sense that they were trying to develop, you know, uh, uh, you know models of how people behave, often simplified, but often they're aware of the simplifications, which would enable you to uh, uh, analyze economic systems and uh, develop policies which would be practically beneficial. Right? So that's one of the things about economics. There's understanding how the system works and using that understanding to develop policies which you think are beneficial. Right? So that's beneficial a really important part of economics. And, uh, um, you know, there's sometimes a distinction between, uh, uh, what's it, positive economics and normative economics. It's the, the, the distinction is sometimes made. The, the, but, of course, the better the positive part, the better your understanding of economic systems and how they tend to work, the better your policy advice tends to be. And conversely, the worse your understanding, the worse your policy advice tends to be. But also, you're, where it's coming from, I would say that probably Keynes was after the common good for his economics. Well, no, I, 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 um, it, it's perhaps different conceptions of the common good. Well, it's hard to <laughs> um, think of... Um, the amount par on society and the corporations and well, the think tanks is they were after the they thought if their class was uh, made safe and improved that would be the common good. 
But they did think that these policies would actually be beneficial for everybody. Right? So, you know, you do them a little bit of credit. They did think that. Um, well, maybe, Melvin, that brings me to um, the question So uh, about conspiracy theories and conspiracy. So, yes. okay, so... Well, can we play a song? Yeah, let's play a then, song. Then we'll talk about conspiracy theories. Unfortunately, I couldn't find a song about conspiracy theories, so you're going to have to...
That was Richard and Mimi Faremi. And unfortunately, this was written in the mid-60s, and unfortunately, it seems even more timely now. But it's also the right answer for individuals to support each other in a time of uncertainty. And today we have as a support person Charles Pigden, who's <coughs> keeping us interested in rationality and politics and philosophy and truth. You can podcast this by going to oar.org.nz and then going to podcast and going to community or chaos. Well, we were going to talk about conspiracy theory if we had some time, and I think we've got some time, so... Yeah, so um, uh, I... A conspiracy theory is one of my things. It's one of my sort of big projects uh, in philosophy. Now... Uh, it, it, it all came about by accident. Um, I, uh, in the early 90s, um, there was a, a retired brewer who had been a pupil of the philosopher Karl Popper uh, at Canterbury um, in the uh, 1940s. And he used to, uh, he maintained his interest in philosophy. Uh, he used to turn up at our seminars regularly. And um, he would invite us round from time to time to sample his homebrew, uh, which we would then soak up with, I have to say, not very appetizing pizza. And that homebrew was some of the most intoxicating beer that I've ever consumed. You know, you'd drink a pint or two and feel someone had hit you on the head with a sledgehammer. The, uh, uh, but uh, before, you know, consuming the homebrew and uh, uh, soaking it up with the pizza, we used to, we, the custom was that one of us would read a sort of fun paper on a philosophical topic. So it would be a symposium almost in the literal sense of a drinking party, but with intellectual content. And it, it was my turn, and I thought, well, uh, uh, I'm kind of a Popper fan. I'm not, a, 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 um, not, not an acolyte. I'm not a member of the Popper church, but I am an admirer. So, um, and I don't want to just sort of, you know, do down Popper, but I thought I might um, do a piece where I thought Popper had something interesting to say, but was wrong. Right? Now, one of Popper's um, uh, themes is a critique of what he calls the conspiracy theory of society. Um, and I thought that uh, there were um, interesting and s that he had something interesting to say, but uh, what he had to say was fundamentally wrong. So I uh, did my party piece, consumed the beer, ate the pizza, and after I'd sobered up, it occurred to me that maybe I could turn this into a philosophy publication. And that was the um, origin story of my paper, um, conspiracy theories um, uh, Popper, Popper revisited or what's wrong with conspiracy theories now I won't go into too much detail uh, with respect to Popper's position but I just want to give listeners the basic outline of my view on conspiracy theories conspiracy theory and conspiracy theorist are terms which are typically used uh, as um, 
in a pejorative sense. They are words of abuse. Call something a conspiracy theory and you're implying, generally speaking, that it's nuts. Call somebody a conspiracy theorist and you're implying that that person is a nutter. Right? That's the way the words are commonly used. And my point is that if you define a conspiracy theory as a theory which posits a conspiracy, right, a theory which says, look, there's a conspiracy here, and if we define a conspiracy as a secret plan to influence events by partly secret means, then the idea that conspiracy theories as such are crazy is itself absurd. Why? Well, history is absolutely chocker with conspiracies. I want to ask you a question. Yeah. If you are open about the goals, the long-range goals which you have, but you're um, secret about how you're going to how you're going to achieve them, where you're getting money from, and other things about your methods, if you're secret. If you keep your methods very close to your vest, secret, does that make it a conspiracy or not? Or, or did it, it makes it partly conspiratorial. Sure. All right? So, you know, you, you, you have to be careful here and not overdo it, right? Sure. Um, but uh, there are some conspiracies where which simply are conspiracies. Pretty much everything is being done um, secretly. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, but there are some conspiracies which are partly open. Now, when I first started um, on this work, which is now um, uh, 27 years ago, uh, I had in mind things like, uh, for the kind of conspiracies uh, which I thought were sort of well-proven, would be things like um, McUltra. This was a secret plan um, to uh, test the operation of, of psychological drugs. Um, uh, uh, the, the CIA was worried that, that people might be brainwashed or that their operatives might be brainwashed. And so they were experimenting in brainwashing themselves. Uh, I don't know if they were actually planning to brainwash other people, but to, to work out how to stop you know, people they thought might be brainwashed from being brainwashed. This research was conducted almost entirely in secret. Um, another CIA one, um, it would be uh, the Congress for Cultural Freedom. This was a supposedly independent left-leaning group of opponents of communism in the uh, 40s, 50s, and I think early 60s which was, in fact, a CIA front organisation. It was funded and directed by CIA operatives, though there were a lot of people who were part of it who didn't realise that. So this was a conspiratorial movement, right? Um, uh, I would say that uh, um, the Watergate affair was a positive tangle of conspiracies. There wasn't just one, there were lots of them. So I had in mind these conspiracies, well documented now, conspiracy theories, conspiracy theories which are now part of the historical record. Were the Condor Project a conspiracy? Uh, now, I'm not so sure about that one. That's the one where they were basically financing du um, uh, uh, fascist government. Every government in Latin America was turned into a dictatorship. Yeah, yeah. That, so, And they were often um, uh, supporting 
even training them in some really horrible things. So yes, that would be a result of conspiracy. Of course, um, there are very many... So, so the basic point, my basic point is conspiracy theories as such are not crazy, false or unbelievable, though many individual conspiracy theories are crazy, false or unbelievable. But they're, if they're crazy, false or unbelievable, they're crazy, false or unbelievable because they're crazy, false or unbelievable, not because they feature mm. a conspiracy. The fact that a because theory irrational. features a conspiracy is a neutral characteristic. Some conspiracy theories are good, some are bad, some are true, some are false, some are sensible, some are silly. So the thing to do is to remove the pejorative connotations of the word conspiracy theory and then to assess conspiracy theories on their merits. Now, often that doesn't take us very long. Often we can say this conspiracy is nuts for such and such reasons, right? But we don't simply dismiss it because it features a conspiracy. So that's the key idea. Now, um, uh, what's interesting is then, um, well, are there criteria for distinguishing between good conspiracy theories and bad conspiracy theories? Can we say something general about whether or not uh, a conspiracy theory with feature X is likely to be true or likely to be false? We can, but it's much more difficult than you might think. So here's one of the ones, and and, um, this is relatively recent uh, um, work. Uh, A conspiracy theory which features a conspiracy from which the costs of defection are low and the rewards of defection are high. And if you have a conspiracy theory featuring such a defectable conspiracy, right? conspiracy from which it's easy to defect, and there have been no defections, then that conspiracy theory is likely to be false. So, to give an example of a conspiracy which isn't very defectable, suppose we're back in Chicago in around 1929-1930, and Chicago has been effectively penetrated by the mob. Right, so the mafia are basically running Chicago to a very considerable extent. They bought off the police. They bought off the um, uh, uh, many members of the legal profession and the judiciary. Uh, and uh, they're running their rackets uh, without much let or hindrance. A lot of people are part of this conspiracy. They're living high as a result of the criminal activities of the mob. Uh, But now suppose they get a qualm of conscience. Suppose they think, well, you know, maybe I shouldn't be making all this money from, um, you know, booze and prostitution and and, uh, protection rackets. Maybe, you know, this is bad. Maybe I should spill the beans to the federal authorities. Well, what's going to happen to them? Well, the threat is one of extreme violence, you know, and not just violence to you, Violence to the people you care about. So the conspiracy, the mafia conspiracy involved in running Chicago, you know, um, uh, 90 odd years ago, uh, was um, not defectable. The costs of defecting were high, the rewards were low. 
That meant that there weren't very many defections. The only way you could get someone to defect, basically, was to get them on some criminal charge, turn them, and then put them in witness protection. You know, that's the only way you could do it. Otherwise, the cost of defection could be absolutely catastrophic for the potential defectors. So this is a conspiracy from which there were few defections. And the reason there were few defections is that it was not defectible. It was not defectible. A conspiracy theory which involves high, high rewards for defection and low costs and from which there haven't been any defections, that's an implausible conspiracy theory. And let me give you an example. Um, uh, there is, uh, as you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if you discussed this on the show, Marvin, um, uh, the theory that um, the victims, the survivors of the Sandy Hook shootings were in fact crisis actors who were paid to pretend um, that, they, that their children had been killed or that they themselves had been injured as a result of the Sandy Hook killings in order to facilitate gun control. And this is a theory put about by Alex Jones, right? That's um, an implausible conspiracy theory for the following reasons. The, uh, uh, the, the rewards of defection had that conspiracy theory been correct, would have been enormous, right? You're a crisis actor. You have to pretend to be an ordinary, you know, middle-class American living in the suburbs, leading a normal life for a very long time to bring the deception off, right? It's You've got to be a deep agent. And um, you've got to sustain this role for years at a time. And if that's going to happen, you know, maybe you, you must be getting a really big payout at the end if that's not the real you. Uh, but imagine that that were true. How much money could you make by going on the right wing talk shows and, you know, uh, appearing on Fox News, spilling the beans of this nefarious um, uh, gun control uh, conspiracy? You could make a fortune. The costs of defection would be really low and the rewards would be enormous. So the theory posited by Alex Jones and people like him, that the Sandy Hook people were crisis actors, was a theory featuring a highly defectible conspiracy from which there had been no defections. And for that reason, that's a, a reason to think that it is um, in, uh, uh, highly implausible, right? So this is a reason not based on, you know, the specifics of the situation so much as a structural feature, a conspiracy theory which uh, features a highly defectible conspiracy from which there have been no defections is ipso facto an implausible conspiracy theory. Um, so that would be a case of um, uh, a bad conspiracy theory, a conspiracy theory featuring a defectible conspiracy theory, sorry, featuring a defectible conspiracy from which there have no defections. Such a theory 
is implausible. And you can probably use that, for example, to discredit the idea that the moon landings were a hoax. Or indeed that, um, you know, the uh, uh, you know, vaccination programs are a hoax. The benefits, if such a theory were correct, of defecting from it and spilling the beans to the relevant parts of the media would be enormous. You'd be on the media gravy train for life. And you probably wouldn't have been shot for doing it. And you probably wouldn't have been shot for doing it. Unlike, for example, you'd defect from, from Al Capone's uh, um, um, conspiracy, the risks of death are really quite severe. Or if you do it from the um, KGB or the CIA. Yeah, uh, um, uh, well, certainly the KGB, um, you know, we, know, we know just recently um, its successor organization, the FSB in, in Russia, has um, assassinated and poisoned defectors. And one of the things you, you do once you get into this, you start reading some really interesting um, history. Uh, so let me give you one which might interest you, Marvin. Um, uh, you know that uh, uh, McCarthy basically, um, Senator McCarthy ran a huge uh, uh, conspiracy theory arguing that the New Deal administration had been deeply penetrated by Russian agents and used it to, one, acquire wealth and power and denounce um, uh, his political enemies and also to you know, wreak a lot of havoc with the lives of individual people. Okay, now here's the interesting thing about that. Um, at the time he was doing this in the early 50s, the, the Soviet conspiracy to penetrate um, the American administration was pretty much dead. It had existed earlier. Um, there had been an attempt to penetrate the New Deal administration, and it did have some success. The Secretary Treasury, uh, Harry Dexter White, was in fact passing information to the KGB at the time they were setting up the Bretton Woods Agreement. And there were other cases, right? Um, uh, the atom spies um, were uh, passing information to the Russians. So there was a moderately successful attempt by the Soviet security apparatus to penetrate the New Deal administration. You know, they, they, it, it they succeeded with the British. Uh, well, here's the, the really interesting thing about what happened. That operation was basically shut down. Why? Well, um, uh, a, an operative called Elizabeth Bentley uh, spilt the beans to the FBI and the CIA. Right? She was a, a Soviet operative. She was a courier. Uh, she was known as the Red Spy Queen. And... Um, she spilt the beans. Right? The reason was she was getting worried that she'd outlived her usefulness and she might be assassinated. Right? So she, she, she spilt the beans. Right? Now, um, uh, naturally, they passed on this information to their allies, uh, their British allies. And who was the British representative on the... Uh, uh, this is Philby. Yeah. I can't remember. Was it Philby or Burgess? I can't remember. It was one of the Cambridge spies. So the British Secret Service had been successfully penetrated by the KGB. And, um, and it was a KGB operative who was 
being told that um, the the uh, the CIA and the FBI had uh, had rumbled the Soviet conspiracy, which they had. If it was a real conspiracy, they'd rumbled it. And um, so naturally, he told his handlers, and um, the Russians basically shut the whole thing down. Okay. Now we've been in ancient history. Are there any conspiracies that, or partial conspiracies that affected our politics and our environment in recent times since the, in the uh, 21st century? Well, I'd go back a bit further, right? Um, okay, sure. So, uh, and, and this is stuff that I'm is fairly recently coming out. There's a book called Democracy in Chains, which... You know, you might well want to read. So here's the basic thing. I thought that the neoliberal revolution was not a particularly conspiratorial affair, right? It, it didn't involve much sort of secret stuff. In fact, the evidence suggests it was more conspiratorial than I thought. And this goes back to your question. Suppose your overall aims are sort of openly declared, but you're using a lot of covert uh, uh, tactics, right? Uh the neoliberal revolution was, to a surprising extent, a conspiratorial affair. Now, mark my words, I'm not saying it's all just a big conspiracy, it's all done in secret or anything like that. No, obviously, uh, some of what they did was open. Right. But part of it was, part of it was um, uh, covert. And there's a whole bunch of literature about this which is coming out right now. Okay. What are some of the covert parts? Oh, well, um, uh, you would fund a uh, academic department supposedly interested in economics, but it basically had a neoliberal agenda. And you uh, and, you know, you would carefully say, oh, well, no, we're not just pushing this agenda. No, no, we're a, a research institute. You're a research institute with a very strong agenda. You know, people don't go along with it. They're not going to be part of that research in institute. You fund things secretly. Um, so these are the kinds of ways. But uh, I should say, Marvin, I've only just started getting into this literature. It's, it's you know, part of my next hmm. conspiratorial projects. I got going on things which are far more obvious and straightforward. This is not so obvious and straightforward for the reason says these are not totally secret they're secret only in the way you know some people were ahead of you charles oh yes some people were ahead of me but there's there's now a lot more of, evidence a lot of evidence and a lot of serious history writing okay <laughs> so can you be any more specific Oh, well, um, there is a, a, a pair of writers called um, Naomi Oreskes and I think John Conway. Naomi Oreskes is a historian of science. Her, her first big book was on the uh, scientific revolution which led to plate tectonics, and it's a wonderful book. Yeah. Um, but she's written two books. One is called uh, Merchants of Doubt, and the other one is called The Big Lie. And uh, what they're about is the way relatively small groups of scientists who are uh, ideologically motivated systematically cast doubt on the reality of climate change 
with a view to blocking any measures that might avert it. That's that's merchants of doubt. Uh, they use the same tactics with respect to um, the risks of tobacco smoking. And the other one is called the big lie, which is basically about the idea that um, uh, um, uh, that there's something radically wrong with government spending or government action to 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 um, improve people's lives, and that this never works. That big lie is put about by uh, a, 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 um, a partially conspiratorial movement, partially conspiratorial movement. Again, some of it's planned, some of it's executed, some of it's funded in secret. Obviously, that can't totally be the case. Okay. Thanks a lot for coming on, and um, we'll have to go over this again at some point. We haven't even talked about hedgehogs, Marvin. We can do that <laughs> no, another time. Okay. Um, thank you, Charles Pigden. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.